guys good? Good. Glad to hear it. So, thank you. All right. <laughs> cool. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 2. I know you're like, Numbers, chapter 2? There's 36 chapters in Numbers. Are we going to go ch- chapter by chapter? Let not your heart be troubled. No, we will not be going chapter by chapter. So, um, if you were with us last week, uh, you know that we started a new series through the book of Numbers called Wanderings, right? And uh, last week we kind of started, uh, we looked at this idea, we looked at the census that was taken and all these different things. Um, but here's the thing that I want us to talk about tonight. I want us to understand this. So th- there's a question that I think a lot of us have asked before. And, uh, and a question that if, if either you have asked it or you are currently asking it, and it's this. What is God's purpose for my life and how do I walk in that purpose? I think it's a question that every single Christian at some point or another wrestles with. And if you remember last week, we talked about this idea that God saved you from sin, right? God saved you from the bondage of sin, but he saved you to a purpose, right? Like we talked about last week that God didn't save you just to sit at Sinai, right? But he saved like, like the people of Israel, he led them out of Egypt, right? He, he led them out of Egypt, but for the pur- he, said, he saved them from slavery, but for the purpose of going to the promised land. And for us as Christians, it's important for us to understand this idea. It's important for us to wrap our minds around this idea that, you know, hey, like your life and God's will for your life doesn't stop when you get saved, right? That it's just really, it's just getting started. And what we have to understand is that a lot of us as Christians, what happens is we kind of have this perspective of, of our walk with Christ that, all right, once I'm saved, okay, good, I got it, I'm done. And then we basically just kind of float around and the rest of our life is just a waiting room until we get to heaven. But man, like, there's so much more than that. Like, there's so much more that God has for you than just for you to just sit at Mount Sinai and not go into the promised land. As we get into chapter 2, we see more instructions that are being given to the people of Israel, right? So last week, we saw this instruction that, that God gave to Moses, and that was to count the people, right? So count all of the men that were of fighting age within uh, the whole company of Israel, right? So this is every man that was 20 years old and up was to be counted. And the purpose of this was them for to be able to know how many men they had that were able to go to war to be able to fight when they went into the promised land. And that number was 603,550. In case you were curious, there's your Bible trivia, right? If somebody asks, how many, how many men were counted in the first census of Israel in the book of Numbers? You'd be like, 603,550, right? And people would just be like, wow, you're awesome. Uh, but, so based off that number, what we know is that we have, there's about two and a half million Israelites that are in the camp, if you include women and children and, and stuff like that. So two and a half million Israelites in this camp. And now that we know how many there are, God is going to give specific instructions on how they are to orient themselves within the camp, right? I mean, you have 2.5 million people, and if you don't give them any specific instructions, they're just a blob of people. Right? See, I've never led two and a half million people before, and I really don't want to. But I will say this. I have led a group of about a hundred or so to, uh, to like, Fuge, and, like, a hundred or so to, like, Aquatica or whatever, and it's chaos, right? It's chaos. 
So what happens? God gives specific instructions on how they are to orient themselves, how they're supposed to organize themselves when they're in this camp. And here's the thing. There's a tendency when we read stuff like this, because I know when I see the book of Numbers, all of you are just like, oh, how exciting, right? Because there's a tendency for us when we get to these areas of Scripture where there's these instructions and there's these laws and everything, it's almost, we almost go through them begrudgingly. We kind of read through them like, like, man, like, ugh. And a lot of us, maybe we even skip these sections of the Bible. We're just like, I'm not even going to read that. Like a lot of you, and I'm not going to like, you know, say like you have done this, but it's very possible, right, that you won't read the book of Leviticus because it's just a bunch of laws to you. It's a bunch of laws that are kind of like, all right, well, like they're sacrificial laws and, and ceremonial laws and everything like that. They're like, all right, what does that have to do with me? So we just kind of skip those areas of the Bible, whether it be Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. You know, we're just kind of like, eh. See, it can be hard to read some portions of Scripture. Let's just get that out there. Because I think a lot of times what happens is we say, hey, read your Bible. And what happens is we read our Bibles, but then, like, there's parts of the Bible that are hard to read. I mean, it's not unchristian for us to say that. Can we all agree there are parts of the Bible that are hard to read? Yes. Okay. Like, so don't feel bad. Like, I'm a pastor, and there's parts of the Bible that are just hard to read. But here's the thing. Part of the reason that those things are hard to read is because when we read them, we don't see, like, obvious life application points. But here's the 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So if all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for training in righteousness, then then what exactly can we learn from these parts of the Bible that are hard to read? Right, if all of the Bible is used for training us and equipping us to live a life that is righteous and pleasing to God, then how is the specific instructions of how they're to organize the camp while they're wandering in the wilderness supposed to help us in our walk with Christ? Now, here's the challenge. Here's what I want to challenge you to do when you get to these areas of the Bible. And this is very, very important because I think that if you do this, it's going to revolutionize the way that you read these certain portions of Scripture. Whenever you get to these areas of Scripture that are difficult to read, when you get to specific commands and laws and genealogies in the Bible, ask yourself this question, what does this reveal to me about the character of God? That's the question you need to ask. What does this reveal to me about the character of God? Because I've learned that you can learn a lot about somebody just by listening to them speak, right? You can learn a lot about somebody just by listening to them speak. And often, you learn more about the person speaking than what exactly they're speaking about. I'll give you a perfect example. So I really like sports, right? How many of you like sports? Cool. Six of you, right? All right. So we really, really like sports. I really like sports. And here's the thing, though. I can sit and talk with people about sports pretty much all day long, even sports that I'm not, like, I don't even know a whole lot about. I just enjoy, like, the idea of sports and stuff. But there's something that's different. Like, if through our conversation of sports we get to the topic of football, you're going to see that conversation take a dramatic shift. Because what you're going to notice about me is you're going to notice I'm going to get a lot more passionate. You're going to notice that I'm going to start talking about things far more specifically. I'm going to start, the way that I'm going to talk about football is going to be different than I talk about any other sport because I love football. I just do. I enjoy football. And, when I, and here's the, I'll talk about football differently than any other sport. 
And here's what you've learned from that conversation that we've had. I mean, you probably have learned a few things. You probably learned what an RPO, run pass option play is. You probably know now a little bit about what defenses are good against what offensive plays, what offensive plays work good against what defenses. You probably learned a little bit of strategy, and some of it's going to stick. But here's what you really learned from our conversation. You, what you really learned was Mike likes sports, but he really likes football. That's what you really learned. See, see, you learned a lot about the little intricacies of football, but what you learned more about me than you did about football. Does that make sense? And I think the Bible is the same way. I think the Bible is the same way. I think when you read Scripture, there's a lot of things that can be learned when you study the Bible. I believe that you can learn a lot about it. You can learn about the Bible. You can, by, you can learn, while reading the Bible, you can study history. You can learn moral stories and how you can apply those moral truths to your life. You can learn about ancient literature and its different uses. But the primary focus of the Bible is not to teach you those things. That's not the primary focus of the Bible. The primary focus of the Bible is to reveal to you and to me the person, the character, and the nature of God. That is the main purpose. So if you read the Bible and you get all the moral stories, you get all the understandings of history and all those things, but you don't walk away with a better understanding of who God is, then you have missed the primary focus of the Bible. Does that make sense? Cool. Right? So, so what we want to do when we get to these areas of the Bible, while they may not have the immediate life application that we're looking for, here's what they do have. What they do have is they everything in the Bible, to, in one, to one aspect or another, will reveal to you an, a, a side of the character or the nature and the person of God. So when you read it, ask yourself, what does this teach me about God? Because the more you learn about God, the more you will be able to live a life that pleases him. So we're in Numbers chapter 2, and I was going to use this whiteboard. It's got a lot of stuff on it. Is the other side clear? Let me erase some stuff first. Sorry. Give me a moment. Do, do, do. We'll cut this out of the podcast. We'll just kind of like, or either that, or we'll just awkwardly listen to this part of the podcast. I got to erase stuff. Y'all like, okay. Can I get somebody to help me grab the other end of this? Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, citizen. All right. Okay. This is going to do, do, do. So if you know me, you know that, like, part of the reason I need you to lift it up, it doesn't have wheels on it, boo. Yeah. The wheels are on it, but, like, they're terrible. They're like shopping cart wheels. You know what I'm saying? All right. So now here's the real, here's the real tr- question. Ah, and it works. All right. If you know me, like, I love teaching, and I love teaching with a whiteboard, so it's my comfort zone. Okay, so Numbers chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. All right, remember now God is giving them specific instructions on how they were to organize the, tabern- uh, organize the camp, okay? Numbers chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to, uh, sorry, those, to the camp, those to camp on the east side towards the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. 
The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab, his company as listed being 74,600. Those to the camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nathanael, the son of Zuar, his company as listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Halon, his company as listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. Woo, that's fun. Like, like, woo, good life application there, right? No, right? So we get to these parts of the Bible and we're like, what in the world is going on? Okay, so basically God is giving them specific instructions on how they are to camp and how they are to march. Here's what you're going to see, okay? Basically, in the middle, you have the tabernacle, written tab for short, okay? You have the tabernacle, right? Here's what he just, so here's the part that we just read, okay? There's going to be three tribes that are going to camp here. This marker is no bueno. Let's see if I got a better one. All right. You got three tribes that are right here, Okay? These tribes are Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And this is going to be known as the standard of Judah. So this whole area is going to be named after the tribe of Judah. All right? Does that make sense? Boom. All right. Cody said yes. I'm assuming you all got it too. All right? So you have that. And then he's going to go over and he's going to explain all of these different things. So you're going to have three more tribes. They're going to be on the south side. This is going to be the camp of Reuben. Reuben, what a, I just, whenever I think Reuben, I think of the sandwich. Anyway, yeah, 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 my people. Okay, so you got Reuben. Then you're going to have three more tribes over here. This is going to be the camp of Ephraim. Oh, the marker. Let me make sure I'm, do-do-do, all right. I don't know if I spot that right or not. All right, Ephraim. Then on the north side, you have another one. Doesn't sound like a Bible name, but it is. This is the camp of Dan. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, just Dan. Basic names in the Bible. It's cool. All right. <laughs> the, the, the tribe of Bob. All right, no. So you got Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, Dan. Okay? And the tabernacle in the middle. Now, within the middle, surrounding the tabernacle, you have the tribe of Levi that camps around the tabernacle. Why would the tribe of Levi camp around the tabernacle? Bingo! You guys pay attention, right? Because so, they're the priests, right? The priests come from the tribe of Levi, so the priests are camped around the tabernacle. All right, so this is what you have, right? And this is, so whenever you see in the Bible where it says, uh, here in Numbers, where it says, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, uh, that word standard, like for us, we think of standard, we think of like, all right, there's like a standard, there's like a measuring thing that you, no. Standard here, was, uh, it's, actually the, it's actually the Hebrew word degel, um, which means banner, okay? So basically, they're going to camp by their banner. And here's the thing. That's going to be very, very important at the very end of the sermon, okay? So just keep that little nugget, throw it in your back pocket, and you're good to go, okay? So that's where they're going to be. Now, here's what I want you guys to notice, okay? Here's what we're going to see. All right, what does the way that they are camped, what does that teach you about the character of God? Here's what I want us to understand. God is going to continue to give instructions for the tribes. And notice what he says in verse 2. They shall camp facing what? The tent of meeting on every side. 
right? So what I just drew, the tabernacle in the beginning, all of them are, that the whole 2.5 million of them are going to camp like this with the tabernacle in the center. And basically what you see is that the tabernacle was to be at the center of all of the people at all times. Because as it goes on and it descri- as it explains this, when they go to march, right, because they're not sitting still the entire time, as they go to march, this group goes first. Marker is pooping out on me here. All right. This group goes first. This group goes second. If the tabernacle is supposed to be in the center, guess who goes third? Good talk. All right. Tabernacle goes third. They go fourth. They go fifth. Now, what you have is even as they march, the tabernacle is in the center. This is going to make sense in a second, okay? So when they camp, the tabernacle is in the center of all the people. As they march, the tabernacle is in the center of all the people. Now, at first, it's not going to seem extremely relevant to you. You're like, what in the world? Why are we studying this? What does this have to do? Because it's very important for us to understand the significance of the tabernacle to the people of Israel. Right? The tabernacle was everything to the people of Israel. It symbolized everything when it came to their relationship with God. See, they worshiped at the tabernacle. They offered sacrifices at the tabernacle. Moses spoke with God, and God spoke with Moses in the tabernacle. God's presence dwelt over the tabernacle as a cloud by day and what by night? Fire, right? It was cloud by day and fire by night. The, uh, the presence of God hovered over the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the symbol of God's presence among his people. It was much more than just a tent. It, was, it symbolized God's presence among his people. And here's the thing. It wasn't just during the 40 years in the wilderness. The tabernacle was later replaced by the temple, built in 957 B.C. It was replaced by the temple, and the temple what? Was, that was God's permanent resting place amongst his people. Then the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D., but it doesn't matter because where is God's resting place with his people according, after Acts 2? In us, right? This is what, see, we are now the temple of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Just as God's spirit was over the tabernacle, just as God's presence was in the temple, now as the Christian, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are now that temple. Does that make sense? Sweet peas. All right. This is extremely significant. It wasn't just the tent that was in the middle. It was God's presence among his people was in the center of everything that they did. Why is this so important? Because the people of God are always marked by the presence of God. The people of God all throughout scripture are always marked by the presence of God. Wherever the presence of God is, there you will find the people of God. This is a fact. You see this all the time. Exodus chapter 33, Moses is speaking to God, and he says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you're in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses is saying to God, what he's saying is that God's presence with the people is what sets them apart from the people around them. 
And this is even true for believers today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what we see is even back in in Exodus, God's presence marked his people. And even what we see written in Ephesians and even what we experience today is that the Holy Spirit of God is what marks the people of God. That is the guarantee of our inheritance, according to what Ephesians says. God's presence is what sets his people apart. And what, why is that significant? Because the people of Israel are about to go into Canaan, which is filled with people that don't want them there. People that they're going to have to go and fight. They're going to have to conquer this land. And what's going to set them apart from all of the enemy nations around them is going to be the presence of God on their lives. God's trying to get the people to understand. He says, you are about to embark on a journey. You're about to step into a mission of conquering the promised land. And before you even start, you need to know that I am at the center of everything that you do. Remember what we talked about last week. God did not save you just to sit at Sinai, but he saved but to move forward in fulfilling the mission that he has for you with the purpose of bringing him honor and glory. At the center of every heart in this room, there is a desire to know what your purpose is. I believe it. I believe that every person in this room, you want to know what your purpose is and you want to know how to fulfill it. Now we know that ultimately that God created us to bring him honor and glory. Isaiah 43, 7, Psalm 19, 1. We see this written all throughout scripture that our purpose is to bring honor and glory to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it beautifully when it says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. However, like I said last week, how you do that is probably going to look very different than how I do that, right? Right, we bring honor and glory to God. See, like I bring honor and glory to God probably differently than you will. I'm going to make disciples probably different than you will. So don't think that the only way that God, that you can glorify God is to preach, You know, see what I'm trying to say? Look, that's just something that God has gifted me with and God's allowed me to be able to do. Here's what you need to find out. What you need to find out is how has God called you and equipped you to make disciples to bring him glory? Because if you are a Christian, that is your goal, to make disciples and glorify God with your life. And every single Christian has been equipped uniquely to do that. Everyone. And while the specifics may look different, there's one thing that remains the same. It is the same thing that God was teaching the Israelites in Numbers chapter 2. It's the same thing that he's trying to teach us today, that God must be at the center. God must be at the center of everything that you do. See, this is something that we all struggle with, though, in some form or another, if we're honest. When we begin to organize our life, we all orient the camp of our life around something. We all orient our, the camp of our life around something. Some people, they orient the camp of their life around money. Other people orient their camp, the camp of their life around comfort. Perhaps it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend that's at the center of your camp. And here's what I, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself this. I want you to genuinely take a moment and ask yourself, what have I placed at the center of my camp? What have I organized my life around? What is at the center of my camp? 
See, this is incredibly important for you to understand, but even more so for you to understand right now at the age that you're at. Because the older you get, the older you get, you're going to naturally arrange the camp of your life around something. It happens naturally. I want you to know that. You naturally place something at the center of your camp and you organize your whole life around it. Why do we do this? Because we're natural born worshipers. See, you and I don't need to, see, I don't need to convince you to worship. My job as a pastor is not to convince you to worship. My job is to direct you to the one who is actually worthy of your worship. The challenge is not choosing to worship. The challenge is choosing to worship God. You can go to the deepest jungles in the world, and you will find people who have been disconnected from human contact. And what will you find? You will find them worshiping. They'll be worshiping trees or lizards or bugs or the sun or the moon or, or whatever. You're going to see people worship, not because somebody came and told them to do it, because that's what we are all born with, this natural desire to do. Even people that claim to be atheistic and non-religious are bowing the knee to something. Even if you're in this room and you claim not to be a Christian, you're like, I'm not religious, whatever, you worship something. Whether you worship your intellect or the intellect of others, or you worship your own independence. Something has taken residence at the center of your camp. See, every camp has a center and every life has a God. I just want to say that again. Every camp has a center and every life has a God. See, the older you get, the more options this world will give you, and the harder it is to recognize the center of your camp. It's just the way it is. Then, as you get older, once you recognize what the center of your camp is, it feels near impossible to rid yourself of it. Because you've, it's been there for so long that it's so hard to change it. Some of you have probably experienced this now. Not even when you get older. It's not enough to have God in your camp. It's not enough to have God a part of your life. He must be the center of it. You know me. You know my favorite author is A.W. Tozer. So, of course, I have to throw an A.W. Tozer quote in here. It's from a book that he has called The Crucified Life. He says, the devil believes in God, so you are on the same page as him. He does not even mind if you worship God, provided that you also worship the gods of the world. As long as you believe in God, as millions of Americans do today, and do not make him the number one exclusive priority in your life, the devil has no issue with you. I think this is, where, this is something that I'm extremely passionate about. Because as soon as we talk about placing God at the center of our life, and he's the number one priority of everything that we do, we get accused of being legalistic. When, from the beginning, God has been trying to get us to understand that he is at the center of everything that we do. Satan is totally content to allow you to have God in your camp as long as something else is at the center. I think that's how a lot of Christians are. God is somewhere in here, but he's not there. So we talked about this idea of understanding that God must be at the center, but the thing that we also need to understand is how do you identify what's at the center? Identifying the center of the camp. How do I identify, how do I know what's at the center of my life? One thing you need to know is that we are really good at fooling ourselves into thinking that God is at the center of all that we do when he's really not. We're really good at it. I'm really good at it. Oftentimes, the true center of your camp can actually be 
difficult to identify, especially if the center of your camp is good things that aren't God. Good things that aren't God. I've said this a million times. You've probably heard me say this, right? Good things become bad things when they keep you from the best thing. And my wife has to tell me that all the time because I'm constantly trying to do good things that keep me from the best things. Good things become bad things when they keep you from the best things. See, we can take good things, but they become bad things when we place them at the center of our camp. One of the first books I ever read, as far as like a, like a I don't want to say it's a theology book, but it's like a, it's like a, like a, it's a Bible, uh, it's a God book. I don't know what you want to call it. Like, I guess, you know, it's written by Tim Keller. It's called Counterfeit Gods. If you've ever read this book, if you're looking for it, it's not very big. It's a fantastic book to read. And here's an excerpt from his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is something that we look to for the things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle but deadly mistake. Another form of idolatry within religious communities turns spiritual gifts and ministry success into a counterfeit God. Another kind of religious idolatry has to do with the moral living itself. Though we may may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving for salvation. Making an idol out of doctrinal accuracy, ministry success, or moral rectitude leads to constant internal conflict, arrogance, and self-righteousness, and oppression of those whose views differ. Do you see how we could take even good things, like the success of a ministry, and I can make that the center of my camp rather than God? This is something that a lot of pastors and ministry leaders struggle with. And as you seek to fulfill the, the, the will of God in your life, this is something that you're going to wrestle with as well. But how can we identify these things? There's a few things that, there's a few ways that we can identify these things, right? There are subtle cues. I want to tell you, there are subtle cues in your life that will point you to where the center of your camp is, okay? Have you ever heard the statement uh, that all roads lead to Rome? You guys ever heard that, all roads lead to Rome? Basically what it's saying is that there's multiple ways, basically all these roads ultimately lead to the same basic point. I'll give you an example. Uh, it's a football example. Hang with me. All right? I'm a Florida Gator fan. I'm, I've, been, I've, been, I've been born and raised a Florida Gator fan. Okay? This past weekend, we lost to Kentucky, okay? which I don't want to talk about it, but we lost to Kentucky, which basically means that our shot at going to the SEC championship is pretty much over. Okay, but here's the thing. If we got to the SEC championship, we would have lost most likely to Alabama. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter who goes to the SEC championship. Most likely, whoever it is, they're going to lose to Alabama. Right? Even Georgia fans who are so confident have no offense, so they're not going to beat Alabama this year. Okay? But that's all right. Right? So whether it's Kentucky, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, South Carolina, they're all going to lose. What, basically, all those different roads lead to the same point of Alabama winning the championship. Okay? That's basically what that term means. But it's based off of an actual truth. Because in ancient Rome, right? In ancient Rome, what you're going to see is that actually all of the roads were constructed within the Roman Empire to lead back to the capital city of Rome. So if you started at Rome and you followed the roads out, basically all the roads in the Roman Empire were designed to lead back to Rome. 
They were all designed to lead back to the capital city of Rome. So if you were following one road long enough, it would take you back to the capital. And you see, here's the thing. The center of our camps are often like this, right? The center of our lives are often like this. There are certain things in your life and in mine that if we follow them, we will find what is at the center. So here's a few diagnostic questions to ask yourself, okay? What angers you the most? If you want to find out what's at the center of your camp, what angers you the most? This is another excerpt from Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. He says, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something that you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way that the idol keeps you in its service and in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all of your efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without it? It may be that until some inordinate desire is identified and confronted, you will not be able to master your anger. You see, sinful anger is the smoke that leads to your idolatry. Right? So if, if you were to go outside, this is something that happens quite frequently around here, I feel like. But if you go out and you see like those, like those pillars of smoke off in the distance, you look at that smoke, and if you follow where that smoke is, you'll eventually, it'll lead you to a fire. And your anger, and my anger, is the smoke that leads to the fire of our idolatry. And I'm not talking about just any kind of anger. I'm talking about an anger that just you can't seem to control. It drives you crazy. Those of you in the room that are competitive like me, I'm super competitive. Right? And here's the reason. I know what my problem is. I'm super competitive, and, but here's the thing. I don't necessarily care about winning or losing. I don't care if I lose as long as I play well. That's the way that I am. Right? I don't care if I lose as long as I do as well as, as long as I do what I know I'm capable of. Why? Because I don't want people to think that I'm trash. I don't want people to think that I'm trash. Why? So what it is is that my idol is the way people perceive me. And whenever I feel like that's threatened, I lose it. And a lot of us are like this. See, when our idols are threatened, we often lash out in anger, seeking to defend the center of our camp. But this, here's the second thing. So what angers you the most? The second thing is what can't you live without? This is something that is especially relevant to you guys in high school and even going into your young adult life. There are things that this world says are important. And here's the two things that I see all the time that this world says that are important that a lot of you do to protect these things. And even I do. The way people perceive you and the way you perceive yourself. And what happens is we do all of these different things to protect those two idols. Oftentimes, these manifest themselves in similar ways. Many people, especially at your age and at my age, they fill both of these needs with relationships. If you're honest with yourself, the reason that, you know, like for those of you boys in the room, maybe if you're honest with yourself, the reason you're dating that girl is because you want people to see you as somebody who's worthy of getting a girl. So what happens is, is that girl, what she is, is she's a means to your end of a positive perception of other people. Not actually because of how you feel about her, but how she makes you feel. Or we can flip it the other way. Maybe you're dating that boy, girls, because he provides you with something that no one else seems to be able to provide you, make you feel good about yourself. 
doesn't necessarily mean what other people perceive you, but how you perceive yourself. The love that you receive makes you feel like I'm worth loving. Why? Because ultimately the idol at the center of our camp is either the way that people perceive us or the way that we perceive ourselves. Instead of finding your worth in who God says that you are and finding it in what God has done for you, we find it in what others say about us. Instead of caring what God thinks, we care more about what the world thinks. Notice the same action but different motivations. Then what happens when our relationship is threatened? What do we do? We get angry or we freak out. We can't possibly see ourselves without that person or that thing until that thing is gone and then we immediately fill it with something else. It happens all the time, guys. And like I've said in the past, if you're not satisfied with Christ at the center of your camp, you'll never be satisfied with anything else. If you're not satisfied with only Christ at the center of your camp, then nothing else will satisfy. The last thing, last diagnostic question to ask yourself to find what is at the center of your life. What are you most willing to sacrifice and what are you least willing to sacrifice? Matthew 13, 44 and 46. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he owns, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, the thing at the center of your camp and the center at my camp oftentimes is ourselves. And the reason that we're not willing to move it around is because it's so hard for us to let go of us. What are you willing to sacrifice? Because here's the thing. So many people are willing to sacrifice their relationship with God so that they can have something else. And if you're willing to sacrifice your relationship with God for something else, that means that your relationship with God is not at the center. Whatever you're willing to sacrifice most likely is not at the center. But the thing that you're not willing to sacrifice, there it is. That's the thing. And all of us in this room, I don't have to tell you what it is. You probably know what it is. I know for me, the th- here's the thing. And none of us are perfect. Why? Because we're sinful people, right? Because so even when there's going to be days where God's at the center, but there's all these other things that are contending for the center of your life. Why? Because we're sinners. So it's not just like, all right, what's at the center, but also what's competing for the center? See, the importance of having God at the center of our camp We see all that. We see how we identify what's at the center of our camp. But here's the last thing. Everything in the camp must be in relation to God. This isn't the last thing, but it's close to it. Everything in the the camp must be in relationship to God. Notice verse 3. To those on the basic, what does he do? As you go through this, verse 3, verse 10, verse 18, verse 25. It says on on the east side, on the south side, on the west side, on the north side. Everything is oriented based off this. He doesn't say on the east side, you're going to have the tribe of Judah. Next to them, you're going to have Reuben. Next to them, you're going to have this group, right? He says... Everything, everything that he explains is in relation to where the presence of God is. And here's why this is so important. Because everything in your life is oriented based on God, not on other people. Because we're, so te- we're so tempted to position ourselves relative to where everyone else is rather than where God says that we should be. It's so hard for us to see our sinfulness because we compare ourselves to other people, not based off to God. It's so hard for us to be able to be content with how God's using us because we see how other people are being used, and we want that. 
We compare ourselves to other people rather than comparing ourselves to where God would have us to be. Don't orient your life based on everyone else. Orient your life based on Christ. And then the last thing, the arrangement of your camp is bigger than just you. You see, the presence of God in the camp is surrounded by the standard of Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan. You guys remember the definition of standard that I gave you? Right? It's a banner. If you notice in chapter 2, God says that each standard is to have a flag facing the tabernacle. You ever wonder what that banner looked like? What was on the banner? Well, if you study it, if you go to like look at rabbinical tradition, here's what you find. You, you find that each standard had a figure, almost like a logo or an emblem, that was on their flag. The tribe of Judah had a lion. This is where we get the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? So Judah was a lion. Reuben was like the image of a man, like a man's head. Ephraim had the image of an ox. And Dan had the image of an eagle. See, these are the four images that were on these flags. So, right, you have lion, man, ox, eagle, surrounding the resting place of God's presence with his people. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you go to Revelation chapter 4, I want you guys, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 4. Because this is going to have big connection here. Revelation chapter 4. John has a vision of the throne room of God. And I want you to see what he sees in this vision, starting at verse 6. It says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like that of a lion. The second living creature like that of an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And the day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, worthy are you, O Lord and, uh, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here's what I want us to see. What did we just see is happening in the throne room of God at this very moment? Surrounding the throne of God, you have four living creatures, one resembling a lion, one with the face of a man, one resembling an ox, one resembling an eagle. And what were the people of Israel actually doing? And they had no idea. They were displaying a heavenly reality in the way that they conducted themselves on earth. They were bringing glory to God in ways they didn't even know. Here's the thing. When you put God at the center of your life, you are going to glorify him and bring him honor and glory in ways that you don't even realize. Don't even realize. They didn't understand this. See, the way you orient your life is bigger than just you. It's bigger than just, than just you. The way that they oriented their camp was bigger than just them. They didn't even know it. So here's what I want to encourage you with. 
as you're seeking to move forward and fulfilling whatever the will of God is in your life, however he's equipped you to make disciples, to bring honor and glory to him, however that looks to you, understand that God has a bigger purpose than you can possibly imagine. And our job is to simply be faithful with what he gives us. And at this point, the people of Israel are. But what we're going to see next week is when they're not. But be faithful with what God gives you. Know that he has gifted you with everything that you need to bring him honor and glory. And even when it doesn't make sense, understand that there's a bigger purpose that God has. Does this make sense? Cool beans. I'm hoping that what we can do as we go through this is we could take a book that could be difficult to understand, but we can get, and we, as we read it, one, it'll teach us how we can read our Bible, and two, it'll teach us more about God than we even knew before. I'm going to pray. I'm going to let you guys go. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who you are. God, I ask that as we leave this place, God, that you would help us to understand that you should be at the center of everything that we do, everything that we say. God, that we would orient the camp of our lives and the mission of our lives moving forward, understanding that you are at the center of everything that we do, not just in the camp, but at the center of the camp. God, I thank you for these, for these students. I thank you for these volunteers. And God, I ask that for those of us who are going to go eat, you bless the food that we're going to eat. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. Love, peace, and chicken grease. I'll see you later.